This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You know, it's always important to be fashionably late around this time of year, except when it's your own show. Uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, Matt Marchese, <laughs> great job the first 30 minutes, pal. Well, I shouldn't say that because I didn't get a chance to hear it. It's kind of been like the audio-video version of planes, trains, and automobiles around here. I want to thank Neil Oston uh, for putting this all together. Like, I, I swear, like, if you're... And TV's going to join us here at the top of the hour. Like, my desk here where I, where I work, because the Internet's down where I'm at. So we've had to reconfigure everything this looks like a dog's breakfast i've got no notes everything that you sent me this morning i can't access uh i know the guests we have coming up i know we got mailbag coming up at the top of the hour and uh listen man thanks thanks for two things thanks for starting off the show and two thanks for uh, keeping me from talking to fridge again i talk to that guy way too often yeah you really do um i thought you and i spoke a lot but every time i talk to you it's like for every time that i talk to you you talk to fridge like two or three yeah times. i know it's work it's my wife lot. calls him is my my work work spouse work spouse anyway so uh mailbag coming up top of the air who else is up our hour two uh we have ryan clark talking about goalie tandems right. and rookie rankings uh it also looks like a two-horse race for the calder trophy Okay, we'll uh, we'll see about that. Okay, that's excellent. Looking forward to that in hour two. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for putting up with me as I try to reconfigure everything here. One of the things that COVID taught us is how to broadcast from home, uh, whether it's radio or whether it is television. And just on days like this, when we're having an ice storm in the area, things can get tricky and things can get complicated. Uh, to our first guest of the program, uh, recently celebrating his 2000th game behind the mic and in front of the camera. Uh, for the San Jose Sharks. Uh, he's one of our favorites, certainly one of my favorites. He is Randy Hahn, Sharks play-by-play voice, and he joins me now. Randy, how are you today? I'm great, Jeff. So nice to be on with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it really has. And uh, I'm glad that uh, on, a, on a day like this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful news day. I was, first of all, I, I, love, the, the, I love the wave. I love the, uh, the applause, you know, watching that game and, you know, announce the 2000th for you, Randy. You're such a tremendous broadcaster. And I thought that you were, you know, you, right away you sort of, you know, deferred and said, hey, Drew Amanda, thinking about you. I sent Drew a text uh, after you mentioned that. And, hey, hope you're, hope you're doing okay. When you look back at, um, at, at 2000 games, like, there's so many wonderful San Jose Sharks memories. So many wonderful players have come through. So many celebrities uh, we've seen in the stands as well. Uh, when you look back at 2000 games, what comes to your mind right away, Randy? Uh, probably the origins of the franchise, which I was lucky enough to be involved with before there was even a San Jose arena. And we thought we could maybe bring hockey to the Bay area and a grassroots group of us got together and, and started beating the hockey drum here in what was, you know, once a hockey market a long time ago with the Oakland seals, but hadn't been for a long, long time. And then kind of the whole culmination of that coming full circle uh, in the spring of 94, just three years into the existence of the team, uh, when um, Nepean's own uh, Jamie Baker scored the winning goal at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit in Game 7 and knocked the Red Wings, who were the number one seed, out of the playoffs. It was one of those moments uh, that you you just never forget. It was the first time I'd ever had tears in my eyes doing a broadcast because of of the unbelievable... Uh, feeling of something that we kind of just hoped would happen did and then culminate in one of the biggest upsets in playoff history. And that's kind of the, the thing that I always revert back to even after 31 years. 
Um, tears in your eyes for Jamie Baker. Uh, were there tears in your eyes when Garpenloff hit the crossbar against the Maple Leafs? Yes, and then Mike Gartner scored <laughs> against the Sharks. <laughs> it was, you know, it's that coulda, woulda, shoulda, and, and, and had the Sharks gone on to the next round, uh, they would have played Vancouver, and they had owned the Canucks that year, and and who knows, they may have gone on to the Stanley Cup to play the Rangers that year. But um, those are coulda, woulda, shouldas, and uh, it was it was uh, you know the, the high of that first round, and then the the most bitter of disappointments in that second round. But I'll tell you what, it was the ride of a lifetime because it was the first time oh, for, sure. for me and the first time for this city to go through something like that. And to see a bunch of hockey newbies uh, just fall in love yeah. with the game and fall in love with the team, it was so special. You know, t take us back to those, um, those, those early days of the San Jose Sharks, and I, I want to sort of frame it like this. Um, I remember having a conversation once with uh, Eli Gold, the, the great broadcaster, uh, NASCAR, college football. He was also the very first play-by-play -play voice of the Birmingham Bulls of the WHA. And the Toronto Toros had pulled up stakes and moved to Birmingham, brand new hockey market, World Hockey Association. And I remember asking him what the fans were like and what they reacted to. And I thought, like I'll tell you, Randy, I thought that, you know, this is the WHA, so they're going to say like, you know, big back scratch and slap shots and line brawls and bench clearing brawls and there's long hair and big mustaches and, and these types of things. And he said the one thing that really got the crowd charged up was line changes specifically wholesale line changes. And I said, really? And he said, well, think about it. In no other sport do you change as the play's going on. You know, that doesn't happen in football. That doesn't happen in basketball. There's a stoppage and then there are changes. He said, it was wild to, you know, this, this brand new hockey market. Five players would go off while the player's going on. Five would come, come back out and they'd all go to their proper positions. And fans here had never seen anything like it. What was it like though, in San Jose, those maybe that first season, what were the what were the fans like? Was there like a, a re-education process that they had to go through with hockey again? Well, the first two years were played at the Cow Palace in San Francisco while San Jose Arena was being built. And that was unique into itself because you had a building that had been constructed in the 1930-ish, 1940-ish era, which was basically, yeah. uh, you know, it was a rodeo palace. That's how it got its name. And hockey got kind of dropped into there and and the the floor wasn't sloped enough to the point where if you had lower bowl seats near the glass you, you were almost like flat on the floor and you couldn't really see that well but that's where joe montana and his wife were sitting you know back in those days and it was cool to be back at the game and i remember when uh, when ron and don came with hockey night in canada that first year and and it was it was just so bizarre to see them in this in this crazy rink where you had to climb up the stairs to go to the dressing room and things like that. But, you know, Link Gates was kind of the guy at the beginning of the Sharks those first two years that, that brought them into the spotlight because of his abilities. I mean, he was, he was Bob Probert, oh uh, who, who yeah. wasn't able to stay on the rails as long as Bob could. Uh, had Link been able to, uh, you know, we'd be talking about him as being one of the great guys who could beat everybody up and also score 25 or 30 goals a year. But he was very popular those first two years, and, and the team was bad. Mm -hmm. But he put them on the map, and people hadn't seen that who hadn't seen much hockey before of a sport where you could brawl and stay in the game. You you know, if that happened in the NFL game as a 49er, <laughs> you're gone. Or in baseball, you know, the fights 
are kind yeah. of lame, but this was full out toe to toe. And I remember when those two fought. I mean, it was still to this day. If you go yeah. on online, it's one of the epic fights of all time, Link Gaines and Bob Probert. But for the first two years until they moved to San Jose, it, it was a lot of it was about that and about the newness of the sport coming back. But you also had a lot of East Coast transplants um, who were coming into this area as, as technology and Silicon Valley was starting to happen. And some of them had some hockey backgrounds, so you had a mix. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Link Gates, and one of the first things that I think of, I remember watching a uh, Spokane-Saskatoon game and it was Link Gates paired off with Tony Twist, and Gates hit Twist so hard that his helmet, yeah, we so seldom see this, his helmet popped straight up in the air like it was a cartoon, Randy. I mean, at that point, I'd never <laughs> seen that before. I'd seen it in cartoons, but I'd never, I'm like, here's Link Gates, like, throwing one from the cellar on one of the toughest ever, Tony Twist, and his helmet went straight up. Um, you mentioned the Jamie Baker goal, and that was huge um, for the San Jose Sharks. Uh, how much did things change, though? We, we think of San Jose, so much of it, certainly for this generation, is wrapped up in Joe Thornton. How much did everything change with that Boston trade? It did. And, you know, Joe spent basically 15 years here, and I would argue that for 10 of those years, he was one of the top players in the NHL, uh, maybe the best passer of his generation, uh, and, and the Sharks yes. maybe have one again now and Eric Carlson on the back on the back end for, at his position. But Joe really transformed the franchise. And, and it's probably no coincidence that, that Joe's not around anymore. And Patrick Marlowe's retired and Pavelski's moved on and, and that the Sharks are are in a very different place. But uh, in a large way, you know, the Sharks climbed on Joe Thornton's back. Uh, Doug Wilson at that time uh, had some pieces like Marlowe and added more and had some goaltending in the Bokov and, you know, put together a, a pretty good complimentary team around Jumbo. But Jumbo was, mm. he was definitely the middle of it. And uh, no, nothing changed this franchise more than Joe Thornton. And uh, we keep seeing him around the rink, even though he hasn't officially retired yet. He's been showing up at a lot of games and practices, et cetera. Uh, and he was kind enough to show at my, I show up at my 2000, uh, game celebration we had at my home here as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if he finds his way into our organization again. Uh, I wish it could be at a player mm -hmm. though, as a player though, because it was you know you guys get to see him once in a while, but we got to see him every night, and it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal period in this franchise's history to see Jumbo do his thing. Who are some of your favorite players? I mean, I would imagine that you know as you talk glowingly and for good reason about Joe Thornton, but who else? comes to mind like when you say their name you just get that soap and warm water feeling and you say wow I was I was lucky to call a large chunk or maybe all uh, of this player's career like who did you who did you really enjoy being around Randy Arthur Zerbe that goalie who was really the Great first one. star for the Sharks you know and and fans chanted his name in our rink for the very first time uh, Igor Larionov, who who was still very much in his prime when he and Sergei Makarov came here and and helped engineer that year three playoff run, which resulted in the win over Detroit. Those were two guys. Uh, you know, Owen Nolan uh, Buster is still just uh, as feisty as ever, and and was a, a force mm. unto himself. And uh, Mike Ricci, who was such a fan favorite here. Uh, over seven, so many years, and, and then to the more uh, you know modern times, and 
and Joe Pavelski, who was absolutely beloved here and in that famous Game 7 against Vegas when Cody Aiken uh, cross-checked him and, and Pavs went down and the Sharks yep. you know, came back in remarkable fashion. Uh, I remember Pavelski coming back in the second round against Colorado or in the next round against Colorado uh, in the conference final, and you could see him in the hallway, and uh, the, the, the camera went on him, and he wasn't able to play yet. But he just received this, a, a passionate standing ovation, just his presence and, and such a good person and a great captain. And those are just some of so many. Nabokov was with us for a decade and, and gave us uh, you know, such good goaltending and a chance to win. Uh, there's so, so many characters from the Stefan Matos to the Ron Sutters to the mm. Dave Browns to the Marty McSorleys. Uh, to Tim Hunter, uh, Rob Zettler, and, and the coaches, you know, Ron Wilson, who you guys got to know in Toronto, and he remains a friend, and he was yeah. great to be around as a media person. I loved Ron and, and still do. And, you know, we've had so many that uh, passed through the doors here that uh, are just terrific people and uh, excellent hockey people as well. Let me ask you about something that may sound frivolous, but I'm, a- I'm actually going somewhere with it, and that is style. Like there's like we think of you know the um, you know the, the 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 classic teams in the NHL whether it's the Red Wings or the Habs or the Maple Leafs and you know it's always tough when you you know move them stylistically an inch to the left or an inch to the right fans uh, freak out freak out a little bit the one thing about the San Jose Sharks and I'll say this going back to right the very beginning and that logo was cool as hell then it's cool as hell now still. This is a team that consistently, whether they've always played good or not, they've always looked great. Like they've always had one, and that continues to this day. And I think that the the retros with the seals, who, you know, I know you can make the argument that well, shouldn't that really be the Dallas Stars retro reverse? If you go, you know, if you go, you know, Oakland Seals to Cleveland to Minnesota to Dallas, that should be theirs. But it obviously it's 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 from the area. Um, they look fantastic. This is a team, Randy. I'm not sure if you have a comment on this or not. That's always looked good. Like it's always been stylistically a great team, from the logo to the colors to all of it. Yeah, they got that first logo right, didn't they? You know, coming right out of the gate oh. in 1991, and yeah, I, and maybe it was a time when media was changing. The landscape was was becoming different, and of course, the internet was in its infancy at then, uh, barely alive, but. You were starting to see mm-hmm. things online. I remember when Princess Diana uh, took uh, took the boys skiing once, and uh, I'm not sure if it was Harry, I believe it was, uh, had a shark's hat on going up the, the ski lift somewhere <laughs> in Europe, you know, and, and you realize that this, this logo, this brand had, had, you know, gone beyond just the NHL. It had become something global, and they got that right. Uh, right away, and it, and it was the most popular thing for quite some time. And now here we are, 31 years later, and they come out with the reverse retros, and and they're they've been extremely popular. Uh, and and when you get the uh, when you get the social media cred from Justin Bieber and his however many billion followers <laughs> um, in today's culture, I mean that's an important thing, uh, right? And it, it validates. Uh, what you do so in a very competitive market and you know this market Jeff uh, you know two sure. major league baseball teams and until recently two NFL teams uh, a world championship NBA franchise MLS all of it you have to stand out and especially if you're kind of 
the new kid on the block, which the Sharks still kind of are competing against some of those longtime traditional franchises. And uh, when it comes to, you know, making themselves look good uh, just from that jersey and uniform standpoint and the logo and the image, uh, they've really been on top of it and, uh, and continue to, to be that. Um, to the San Jose Sharks right now, and you know this is a, a season where there's a new general manager, a new head coach. I think we're all, I think we're all, Randy, in a lot of ways, waiting to see, you know, what type of general manager Mike Greer is going to be. Like, what's his idea? We know him as a hockey player. Certainly, uh, he comes from a family that has a strong leadership background as well. So, not exactly a, a surprise that he transitioned into this role. But what type of manager do you think? Mike Greer will evolve into here based on your interactions with him so far? Well, from what I've seen so far and the moves he made on his way in the door, um, he's, he's a, a manager who is not going to be autocratic. He's going to be uh, very inclusive and, you know, have a group of people around him that he really relies on. And, and those go back to players that he came up with, with the Edmonton, Oilers and, you know, like Todd Marchand and Doug Waite and people who are in the Sharks organization now and people he's familiar with from his, uh, you know, alumni at Boston University, like like David Quinn, the head coach. And on through the organization, you see the fingerprints of Mike's past as a player, along with his college ties to that very successful college program. And, and I think he's really leaning on a lot of their experience right now because this is a, a it's a delicate situation here he's he's got salary mm-hmm. cap issues that he inherited they're difficult to get out from under he has some very long locked in no move or limited uh, move contracts to try and deal with in players uh, who are also important in this community to the fans I mean they've seen in the past few years Thornton and Marlowe uh, have their careers you know end through uh, retirement and then Pavelski moving on, and now Brent Burns moving on. Uh, these were iconic players in this marketplace for a long, long time. So uh, it's a delicate dance, but I think I think Mike's been very patient. It's a look and see. I think that he um, needed to fix the culture in the dressing room here after all that happened with the Evander Kane situation, and you know that was a very tumultuous time for this organization, and and the you know they're feeling the aftershocks of not having the player anymore, nor the assets they gave up to get Evander. So that's a deep hole yeah. that was cut into the, the fabric of the team. So he's got he's to deal with that. But when you look at the people he brought in, like Nico Sturm and, uh, you know, other players like Matt Benning and, uh, you know, Nick Bonino, uh, you, you see uh, guys that are good hockey people, good leaders that can help Logan Couture, the captain, have a good dressing room and, and play hard and play hard for one another and then you know the chips will fall where they'll fall and the, the moves will be made before the deadline that'll be moved but I, I think to, to answer your question Mike is uh, is going to be patient here and really rely a lot on the people he trusts the most and, and those are his lieutenants and his advisors that he's brought in and maybe will continue to add um, w- one last one before I wrap up with you and let you get on with uh, what is always a busy day in the in the life of Randy Hahn. Um, <laughs> I want to. I'm curious about the fan base here, and we know some fan bases because Mike Greer's got a, got some big decisions ahead of him. Like we all we all understand what the score is. Um, 
I've always been led to believe that this fan base needs a winner or needs a competitive team and doesn't have an appetite for any type of rebuild, either a small, quick reset or something that's lengthy. We've seen teams go through both. Is that accurate? Or would this, I, or would these fans be able to say, you know what, we know where this is going. As long as we see a direction, we'll be supportive. I think you're right. I don't think this fan base uh, in this marketplace uh, has the appetite for, you know, maybe what is happening in Detroit or what continues mm-hmm. to go on in Buffalo or what we're seeing being stripped down in Chicago or Arizona. I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure Chicago fans have an appetite for it either, but it's happening. <laughs> I don't think um, so. <laughs> it, you know, um, and, and, and it might be happening despite the Sharks' intentions for it not to happen just because they're, they're having difficulty getting traction. Although I think they, they, they have a chance to be better, you know, going forward than they've been so far as all these new pieces mm-hmm. become a little more familiar with one another from, you know, coaching staffs to management and new players. But I, I just think there's too many things to do in the Bay Area, and you've been here, and I just mentioned all the, the sports teams that play here. And you have Steph Curry and a Warriors team that play at the same season as the Sharks who, you know, have been unbelievable yeah over the last decade uh, and they've they've sucked a lot of the attention in the marketplace and rightfully so in their direction uh and and, and then you just have an area where if you want to go uh and hang out at the beach in santa cruz you can do that in the winter or if you jump in your car you can drive three and a half hours and go skiing in lake tahoe or you can jump in your car 90 minutes and go play golf at right. Pebble beach or take a train up to san francisco there's so many options to uh, occupy your downtime here uh, that I don't think people are interested in going to something that is, is perpetually in a rebuild, a non-playoff. It, it's really all the Sharks fans have known for the most part in these 31 years with the odd exception yeah. is playoffs. And that special time of the year when you're in that, that sixth group of 16 and every you, you, you hang on every period of every game. Well, and they miss that dearly, yeah. and, and I think they want it back as soon as possible. So I just don't see the Sharks and, and ownership here having the appetite for some of the, the strip-downs we've seen elsewhere. Fingers crossed we get there. You're the greatest. Randy, thanks as always. Jeff, my pleasure. Always enjoyable to uh, watch you and hear you, and I wish you and your uh, listeners happy holidays. Merry Christmas. The great Randy Hahn, 2,000 games with the San Jose Sharks. We thank him for his time today. More Merrick Show, Hour 2 is on the horizon. Keep it here. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Hi, welcome to Hour 2. And a reminder that technology is your friend and it makes all of our lives easier. It has been a a wild ride. Thanks for sticking with us and joining us now on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Uh, Hour 1 is in the books and here comes Hour 2. Ryan Clark from The Athletic stops by at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime... 
talked about this last night online, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll try to do this on a, on a more regular basis. Uh, and that is mailbag, um, sending in your comments, sending in your questions, sending in your hot takes, um, your diatribes, your your whatever. Um, happy to read and engage, and answer, and inflame uh, alongside Matt Marchese, our producer. How are you, Maddie? I'm good, Jeff. Uh, staying nice and warm inside because, uh, you know, all hell's breaking loose out there in the, in the greater Toronto area. Yeah. Well, it's true. And so I just live a little bit north of the city and I'm, uh, I've graduated now. I've been in this industry since 1994. And as I like to say, I've graduated uh, to my basement, which is where I do this program on a daily basis. And looking outside the one window that I have, it looks ugly. It is ice stormy. Uh, my internet is down, so we've had to reconfigure everything here just to, to get on the air. But yeah, it's uh, it's nasty outside, Maddie. It's uh, it's nasty, but uh, we continue because it's all we do for a living. And I always have to remind myself, I'm one of the luckiest people on earth. Um, we watch hockey games and we talk about them. There are a lot more difficult jobs around as I try to reconfigure my chair. Uh, okay, so what do you want to start with today for the mailbag? We got some uh, some good ones online. We do. Uh, let's start with this one because this is this is okay. one that I know that you've thought about, um, and it's from okay. Jeff Weir who asks if you could go back in time and be live at any event or game in hockey history, what would it be? Thanks, Jeff. Great name. Oh, <laughs> well, thanks for the question, Jeff. Um, there's actually two dates, but they take place at the exact same tournament. It's March 21st and March 28th. It is in Stockholm. It is the World Hockey Championships. It is Czechoslovakia versus the Soviet Union. Now, the historical background on this one, and it's 1969, by the way. So, August of 1968, the Soviet tanks roll into Czechoslovakia. Okay? And that world, the following world championship, the one in 69 in Stockholm. You know, we always talk about how teams hate each other and res- refusing to lose and they'll do anything to win. Usually it's a metaphor, Maddie. Like usually it's just like, okay, that's how you hype a game, refusing to lose, hate the p- people you're playing against, all of it. Generally that doesn't really happen. That's all metaphorical. Uh, this was a, these two games were two games without metaphor. Like everybody on the Czechoslovakian side, everything they said is what they wanted to do to that Soviet team. Let's not forget too, that Soviet team was a juggernaut. Every single year of the World Championships, the Soviet Union are just rocking teams, just destroying teams. And this is a very proud Czechoslovakian squad. Uh, you can see clips. I'm not sure if entire games, maybe they are, uh, have been made available online. But this was the most, for my money, Maddie, this is the most intense hockey in the history of the sport. Like, there have been games where the two sides don't like each other and we see brawls. Okay, we've seen it at every single level, forever in hockey. But Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union in 1969 at the World Championships. Jan Suci scores in that first game, I believe, to make it one nothing. And Yuri Holik um, gets in the face of the Soviet netminder Zinger and taunts him and points his stick at him. Like you can tell from the opening puck drop, this means everything 
to the Czechoslovakian hockey team. They just saw their country, you know, invaded by the Soviet Union. The tanks roll in down the cobblestone streets of Prague. This meant everything. They didn't win that tournament. Uh, they ended up losing to, uh, to Sweden. But those two games, both of them won by Czechoslovakia. I think the first one was one nothing. I think that Suchi goal stood up. And then 4-3 to three was the other one. I remember um, during his and then certainly after his career, I became really close with Bobby Holik. Uh, his father, Yuri Holik, played on that 1969 team. Actually, Yuri Holik was the one that covered up the, uh, the Soviet Union patch. Uh, on his jersey, and that is like at that time the major no no and the repercussions for the athlete and the athlete's family, etc., etc., etc. I mean, the, the things that Bobby told me about what his father said to him about what those world championships meant for Czechoslovakia, like it is, it's chilling about that entire world championships and the undercurrents of hatred based on the political climate and what had happened. If I could go anywhere because I just want to I would just love to experience that type of energy and really see hockey where like in the Czechoslovakians minds that was life and death like there was no way no way that they were going to allow themselves to lose to the powerhouse Soviet Union so March 21st March 28th 1969 Stockholm World Championships that would be the one for me what about you, Maddie? Do you have one? Because to, to me, that's like, that's it. Like, that is, that is the, the absolute, like, that is just more than sports. Way more than sports. Do you have, do you have one for yourself? Yeah, yeah. For me, I mean, it, it would have been, it would have been, um, I don't have the exact date because, um, you know, I'm not historically inclined like you are. But I would have loved to have been in russia for game eight of the summit series and the only the only and i know that may seem obvious to a lot of people because i do love yours because mm -hmm. that is the one time like people talk about sports and politics crossing over and a lot of time we get hyperbolic oh, yeah, yeah. about that that was real mm -hmm. like what you were talking that about that was real um but for me it, it would have been the summit series and and being there for game 82 only because I still think, and people, and so many people say, "Oh, well, Sidney Crosby's golden goal," but but it was in terms of how the sport could have changed if it went the other way, was being in that rink if Paul Henderson did not score that mm. goal. We've talked about it on this show, and for me, just to be a part of that piece of history, I think would have been mm. really cool to be at, just to experience it, because I feel like. Uh, in the age that we are now in terms of, of, you know, social media and everything, like we almost get, we get inundated with so many different things. And I think sometimes we lose perspective yep. on things. And, and at that time, the summit series was literally the only thing. If you were a hockey fan, it was the only thing. Like I would love to know the percentage of Canadians that watched that game because I bet you it's really high and we'll never experience anything yeah. like that again. Um, so for me, that would have been it. I, I just, I do love yours. I love yours more than mine because I think that like when we talk about cutting the tension with a knife, that you could have actually done there. We, well, we talk about everything and, being so, yeah. oh, it's bigger than what we make it out to be, but that was something that was <laughs> legit real. Or to see, um, 
JP Parisi, I think it was in game eight, uh, almost decapitate the uh, the official Joseph Kampala. He charged at him with a stick yes. and, and raised yes. it up. And so, okay, see, for you, it's game eight in that series. You know what the you know what the game is for me? Game one. Yeah, was, was that was the other one I was game, thinking of. If if I was going to pick one game that I would have loved to have attended, it would have been game one, just to be in the building and and understand the feeling of maybe we're not the best. And that's speaking as a Canadian. Like, that loss, I know Canadians love to focus on Game 8. I'm forever intrigued about Game 1. To me, everything changed on Game 1. I know, you know the big heroics and the Henderson goal and uh, chest beating and we're better than you happened in Game 8. But to me, hockey changed in Game 1. I just would have loved to have... Like, don't you want to, like, be there to feel that energy of, like, for the first time, Canada really has self-doubt? Like, hang on a second. We're, we're supposed to be the best. Like it's it, it's interesting in in Paul Patsku's book too. He, he goes back and he he shows some uh, some of the clips from um, from various hockey writers and the predictions. And everybody is saying like, everybody is saying a sweep for Canada. They take all eight games. That was the feeling going into all of it. And right away, bam, Montreal Forum, bam, one of the birthplaces of hockey, bam, the center of all hockey in Canada. It all unravels. It all unravels. After Canada goes up to and everyone thinks that, oh, this is going to be an easy cruise. And then the Soviets start pouring it on and on. And all of that bravado and arrogance just dissipates. I want to know what that building sounded like. I want to know how it felt to be in that building, to have that doubt and to watch those players skate off the ice as everybody at the Montreal Forum has their jaws on the ground saying, what just happened and did hockey just change? Because it did, because Canada wasn't top of the mountain anymore. That to me would be the fascinating one. That, that's interesting that both of ours involved the Soviets though. Yes. <laughs> involved involve the, uh, the, uh, the, the at the time quote unquote evil empire. Um, but that is an intrigue. I think a lot of people would say 87, Gretzky to Lemieux would be a big one. Miracle on Ice would certainly be a big one as well. I would have loved to have been in the, in the, in the building for the Bob Nystrom goal, for the, the first Stanley Cup win for the New York Islanders. Um, that would have been an absolutely huge one. I mean, there are a, a, a bunch that I'm leaving out here, but those would be some of the ones that, that, come, that come to mind. But for me, 1969, 1969, sure. Czechoslovakia and, and Soviet Union. Okay, I like this one. This one comes from Ray, and he asks, um, there's actually two questions. So I'll ask the first one and then the second one, because I think both are, are okay. require a, a good thought. Um, if you could have okay. a 24-7 type show follow any team or rivalry in history, hockey or otherwise, who are you following? Team USA, Team Canada, women. Yeah. And here's why. What we get a lot of is, oh, we have a lot of respect for the other team. Oh, we love Hillary Knight. Oh, we have all kinds of respect for Marie-Philippe Poulin. Oh, no, we're all working towards a common goal. That's generally what's said in front of the camera and when the microphones are on. And I know a lot of these athletes <laughs> that have played and continue to play on both sides. I assure you, 
the conversations, Maddie, are nothing like that. Like, I, it's funny. I, it's funny you, you mentioned this question because I, I've maintained for the, ever since we saw that first HBO 24-7 Washington Capitals, Pittsburgh Penguins, part of the stickiness of that was the flypaper of it was that we got to see, and we get these glimpses every now and then, you know, hot mic on the rink, you hear how players are really talking to each other. Hot mic in the dressing room, you realize like how they're talking. Hot mic in the dressing room in the coach's office, you realize how coaches are talking, right? Well, you're, you're looking for the real. And some of it's really gritty and a lot of it's really offensive. Team Canada and Team USA, on the ice, off the ice, in front of each other, behind each other's backs, are nasty. They really don't like each other. We saw a glimpse of this with the Haley Wickenheiser 19, uh, uh, the, the, the Salt Lake City 2002. Um, all the stuff about the Canadian, it wasn't true, but the stuff about the Canadian flag essentially, uh, essentially on the floor. And um, like you see that nature of, of that hatred. Um, you know, I always tell the story, and Cassie still will not tell me who it is. Uh, at the handshake line at one of the world championships uh, before Salt Lake, uh, one of the American athletes, as they were shaking hands, looked Cassie in the eyes and said, bitches never win. Jeez. And Cassie <laughs> wrote that down and put it in her stall. <laughs> like, honestly, dude, I'm telling you, we never see that because you're always looking for the real. We never see that side of the Canadian-U.S. rivalry. We just keep hearing, it's a rivalry, but it's always about the two best. And whenever anyone talks, oh, we got a lot of respect and all that. Give me the real in that rivalry. Give me that behind the scenes 24-7, cameras following everywhere, and you're not allowed to edit it. That, to me, would be one of the more I And I think it would be great for women's hockey, too. I really do. I think it would add a whole another layer of, uh, of intrigue uh, and interest from a lot of hockey fans. I think there would be a lot of players... <laughs> Now, that might look back on it and go, oof, that was a little bit harsh there. Um, but that, that, rivalry is, that rivalry is intense. And as much as, a lot of the, uh, as, as much as a lot of the players want to play off how much respect they have for each other, and they do, they also have a healthy, a healthy dose of hatred for one another, too. So I'll take, uh, if you're doing a 24-7 series, Team USA, Team Canada, women. What about you? I'm going with the original six in the the 40s and 50s when teams used to still take the train and even into the 60s, but more the 40s <laughs> and 50s. And because, yeah. the, like, we talk about, it's funny how much of our program talks about hate, um, but I, I loved how much players did not like each other. Like, they would be on the same train and you could not talk to the other team. Like, that kind nope. of stuff doesn't happen now. Sure, players don't like yeah. each other, but it's certainly not the same level of hatred. But, like, there was an instance between Montreal and Boston where they were on the same train coming back and the police had to be called at, uh, at a stop so that they could break up a brawl. Like, that kind of stuff, to me, yeah. is, is intriguing. Just, I would love to know... I would love to know about, you know, play, like pay, players talk pretty openly back then, but just about how much they actually hated the other team. Like that's when, you know, there was only six teams. We understand that. And teams were yeah. generally speaking really good. And, and you never wanted to be traded to Chicago because that was a disaster. And, you know, the Rangers, oh, the they won farm, in 1940. Farm team, and, farm team for the Red Wings. That was what all yeah. it was. The farm team for the Red that's, that's when the Norris family owned like more than half of the NHL. That's a story for another day. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. And, 
and and just the the players and like it would have to be an unedited version it would have to be uncensored because just look at the lifestyle that some of these players had like you know guys would be smoking and they'd be drinking and it would be just fine because they'd go out and play the next day i think the unedited version of the original six from like 1940 Hmm. to 1955 would be absolutely unbelievable to know about This leads me to wonder about which individual team would you like to follow the most? Yeah. I wonder about the early 70s Boston Bruins. Yep. With I thi- philosophy, I think the, personality. I think the right? 80s like, Oilers as like, well. Uh, that has kind of been documented, but, you know, not completely. <laughs> um, that team was uh, very much in the spirit of those, uh, of those early 70s Boston Bruins teams as well. Hmm, that's a that's a really interesting one. Which team? Maybe early seventies Bruins for me. That might be it. For you, it's eighties Oilers. Uh, it would be eighties Oilers or the expansion Blues. Oh, that's a great one. Good team, really tough team. Uh, legendary names on that team, both on the ice, behind the bench. That's a team that launched a lot of careers. Yeah, Expansion Blues might be a good one, too. I like that. All right. Uh, Our our second question from Ray is, I think a great place to experiment with getting rid of offsides would be overtime. I think it would take an already winning concept to another level. Uh, On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do neutral zone regroups bug you? Uh, Because that's what overtime has kind of become, right? Because nobody wants to take the far angle shot anymore because it leads to a two-on-one the other way. So you look for the perfect shot now. And if you don't have it or if you don't have a play, what do you do? Regroup, 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 regroup. That's kind of what... Like we always... One of the great things about overtime when it started, the three-on-three, was remember how we all thought, oh, this is great because coaches can't get their hooks into it. It's just free-flowing and up and down and every OT is wild. There was that one in the first season, that Detroit-Ottawa OT that we all like. It was just five minutes of sprints, and Zetterberg hit two crossbars, and it was wild, great overtime. But now it's become, it's become coached, <laughs> to be blunt, unfortunately. It's, it's still wildly exciting, and at times when it's a track meet, it's fantastic. But it's become, it's become kind of coached, and because of that, it's kind of lost some of its charm, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, coaches ruin everything. They are ruiners, um, as I like to say. That's um, okay. How about that? You, you know what? Hang on. Here, here's an idea then. How about this? For one game of the season, coachless game. Players just go and play. Players are just too robotic how now. Do, they just follow how, the system anyway. Here, here, you think so? But this is like, okay, guys, no coach, just go play. It's a hall pass. <laughs> that's what i'm saying hall pass game get rid of the coaches all of them i like it <laughs> i like it i think we can manage with that um okay here's here's another one uh this one um this is back to your the your love for the wha uh this is from davdi okay. and he asks how many stanley cups would the wha jets have won if they could i'll hang up and listen it's a great it's a great question. And the one of the interesting things about the WHA, as much as it was a rival, 
um, to the NHL. There were exhibition games that were played between the two, and there were actually trades uh, between the two leagues. Like if you're ever interested, there's some you know some wonderful books uh, that you can read and a lot of resources online about the relationship between the NHL and the WHA, as the WHA essentially raided um, the National Hockey League. Um, how much would they have won? None. Like the, the, the WHA lover in me wants to say like, oh yeah, man, that Jets team would have won like two or three steps. No, they didn't have the depth. Didn't have the depth that NHL teams had. You know, I, I, uh, I'll put it this way. At that time when the Montreal Canadiens were riding high and, and winning all those Stanley Cups, their farm team, okay, the Voyagers were, were probably better than a quarter maybe half of the NHL. I don't know how much better the Avco Cup teams would have. It's true though. You look at some of those you look at some of those Nova Scotia teams that Montreal had and holy smokes they were good. Um, I really want to say that Winnipeg would have won a couple of them uh, because I like a lot of players on that team. Some I really don't like on that team, but there's a lot of people that I do and front and center might be Joe Daly. Um, but I can't I, I can't bring myself in all good faith to think that that Winnipeg Jets team, as good as they were, and they were really good, would have been able to compete against who was winning the Stanley Cup at that time. There's, there's just no chance. No, yeah, I, I can't bring myself I, I to, to say it, Matty. It, it would, would, wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. It would be a nice story. And there were a lot of games that the WHA did win against the NHL in those crossover games, but can't say it. I can't say it, man. No way. All right, here's another WHA question before we get back to uh, maybe some more wow. present-day stuff. Uh, do you think okay. the blue WHA-style pucks would present better on TV than traditional black pucks? That from Brian Palmer. Uh, great question. I love how Eileen, no. experimented with colors. I don't, I don't think so either. Um, I like light blue as far as an ice color. Um, and this, yes, I know you'd have to change the... Uh, change the color of the blue lines and call the blue lines something else. Um, you know, during the lockout in 0405, Rochester and St. John's had an exhibition game in Buffalo, and they, they did that. You can see visuals of it up online, too. I thought that looked really nice um, with blue ice and orange blue lines, or whatever you want to call the blue, orange lines, I suppose. Um, I thought that looked really good. I mean, my main thing about, my main thing about colors is... Um, one of the things about anything on television or anything on your tablet, if you're presenting it as an entertainment product, you want to make it as easy on the person's eyes as possible. And I get it, like, you know, black puck, white ice, it makes it as simple as possible to follow the puck. My only question is, and I always try to think, like, okay, this is, this is Jeff, and I've watched hockey since I was four or five years old. I've, it's baked into my DNA. It's something I've always done and I always will do. I... I, I I've grown up with white ice and white boards and white jerseys. I'm just used to it. I always think about, Maddie, what's a new fan thinking? Or not even a new fan, someone that just sees hockey on television for the first time. Like when you watch golf, for example, golf relaxes your eyes. It's easy to watch. Um, baseball is the same way. Like it's, it's greens, it's lush, it looks easy on the eyes. Football, you can make the argument. Basketball as well. Like, ask anyone in television, anybody, uh, what's the worst color on TV? They'll tell you, white. It's awful. It's uh, tough to shoot and hard on the eyes. 
Yet here we are with white ice and white boards and a white jersey. And all I'm saying is to bring new fans into the game, give yourself the best possible chance to do it. And you know what? It will look like I, I think that teams should be able to choose the color of the ice that they want. We hear so much about home ice advantage. And we we're talking about marketing the game and retro, reverse retro jerseys and all that. What happens if you, like, you let the Calgary Flames choose what color their ice was going to be? Or to the uh, Minnesota Wild. You want to do a version of a green on the ice? Go for it. You want to really like play with colors in this game? Because I do. I think the opportunity is, is, is sitting right there. So to the question of would, uh, would, would blue pucks change anything? I'm saying give it a shot. Why not? You know, unlearn something daily. Don't let the cement harden around your ideas. Don't assume that because it has been for a long time that it should be for the future. And I think that that's true of the colors of just about everything in this beautiful sport that I love so much. And I suspect you do as well. What do you think, Batty? I like, like the idea the colors of, a little bit, maybe. I, I like the idea of picking your ice color. Like if you look at... If you look at like the Boise yeah. State Broncos in college football, like their field's blue. Um, Great. If you look That's at, beautiful. Uh, yeah, if you if you look at um, University of Texas San Antonio, uh, their field is orange. I mean, or they've done orange in the past. Like I, I think that that just adds an element, much like you know when teams wear the their jerseys. I, I think that that it adds it, it adds um, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, like it, it's part of the, the organization's existence, right? It's, it's what you go to see. It's like, Hey, we're going to Boise state. We're playing on a blue field. Like that's really cool to me. Awesome. Um, so I think yeah. I like the idea. Um, we got, uh, let's do one more. Uh, this is a modern day question. Um, okay. This one from, uh, Oh, here it is. Jake DeMarais. And he asked, how do you feel about all reviews having to be watched at full speed? No slow motion review, speeds up review process, and keep some element of human interpretation. You know, Tim McAuliffe brought up a really good point. I think it was on yesterday's Tim and Friends show where he talked about um, reviews have to have a time limit to them. Like if you can't determine or overrule a call in a minute, then the call just stands. Because the one thing, like, hockey's a flow game. Hockey's a, a speed game. And, you know, now we're in this constant, you know, this, I shouldn't say constant. That, that's, that's, that's being too much. But we're in a state right now where we pause and we don't even go frame by frame. We go pixel by pixel through things to try to, quote, unquote, get the call right. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. And, and this may, I had this conversation a while ago with someone. <sighs> Hockey... Okay, I'm curious what you guys think about this. Hockey was never intended as a sport to be perfect. It's a game of generalities. It's a game of it's close enough. And the thing about, and we're always talking about offsides and offside reviews. Offside reviews, or sorry, the, the, uh, the blue line and the offside was really just put in to make sure that players don't don't goal suck or cherry pick and just hang out by the other team's net. Offsides were never intended to be something that we go through pixel by pixel. 
to determine where was the skate and did it cross the plane and where was the puck and you know break down the minutiae of zone entries. Now you can make the argument, and I'll listen to it, that, well, you know, Jeff, the sport evolves and we have to evolve along with it, and there's technology and that'll allow us to determine whether a play was really offside or not. And let's not forget here, Jeff, the era that you're talking about, there were thousands of dollars involved, and now there are millions of dollars involved in these calls. And I'll listen to that. But I just think that for some historical reference and framework on all this, offsides were never intended to be perfect. You know, they're so, supposed to be sort of treated like dump-ins behind center. Like, how many times have you said, oof, I'm not sure if you got the line on that one, and someone else said, eh, it's close enough. It's fine. <laughs> that's that, that's kind of how that's kind of how offsides were supposed to be treated. Only call the egregious ones. That's why I always say tongue-in-cheek. One of the shows that I've always wanted to put together is go through all the greatest goals of all time in the history of not just the NHL, but in all of hockey, go back and look at the zone entry to see which ones were actually offside and which ones were onside. But, you know, blue lines weren't there. Blue lines were just there for the egregiousness of it and to make sure that players just didn't hang out deep into the offensive zone. It's just a way, essentially, to, to, you know, to, to scare the birds off the corn, to scare the players out of the offensive zone when the puck was at the other end. How's that? I think I, I I think that that's probably correct. Like you, I, it's funny that you mention you mentioned that um, uh, like how, how many goals we look back on in history were offside. Like you know, some some may think the the Bobby Nystrom Cup winning goal was was oh offside. big time, right? There so, was one for sure. I think it was, I think it was the, I think it was the third goal of the game in that one. Uh, I can't remember who scored it for the Islanders, but that one was, you go back and look at it, like, woof. Yeah, that one was offside. But anyone go back and look at the Henderson uh, Henderson goal that you talked about in Game 8? Want to go back and look at the entry? I don't know. Have you looked at it? I don't think I have. I, I think it would be super interesting. I, I think there, <laughs> there are lots. Could you imagine the goal review on that one? Oh, I'm sure nothing oh. bad happened. Yeah, I know. Ovechkin breaks Gretzky's record. The big celebration. Confetti falls, and there's a challenge. Which coach do you think Oshie, would do that? Onside or offside? Which coach do you think would do that quickly? John Tortorella, sir. <laughs> John Tortorella. That's who I'm calling on that one. Oh, you're probably right. Sure. Uh, any more? Do we got to move on? These are fun. Uh, we got we got to take a break here. We'll get to let's let's get to Ryan uh, after the break, and then uh, if we got some okay. time, I've got I've got lots more. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so Ryan Clark joins me next from the Athletic, and maybe we'll squeeze more of these. These are great questions. Uh, more of these questions here coming up. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you aboard today. Uh, although we are having some technical issues, we're, uh, we're soldiering through here, folks. And uh, thanks so much for sticking with us, either across the Sportsnet Radio Network uh, or Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Um, 
going to bring aboard Ryan Clark here from ESPN to talk about a couple of things. Goalie tandems and the rookie race as well. Ryan, how are you? Good, my friend. How are you doing? Oh, man, it's so good to hear your voice again. Um, you've been doing well? The gig's good? Yeah, yeah, no complaints. What about you? How's everything been? Uh, I don't have to work, so it's great. I just watch hockey games and then talk about them and get to talk about, uh, you know, get to talk to good friends like you. So my life right now is sweet, even though, uh, and I'm doing this, I do the show every day, Ryan, from, uh, from my basement. Uh, I've graduated in my career to my basement now. Congratulations, Merrick. Um, I'm having major <laughs> internet issues. We have an ice storm going on in the area. So we're kind of doing this MacGyver style with toothpaste and toothpicks, but we're, we're keeping it all together. We're keeping it all together. And in that spirit, I'll dovetail into the idea of goalie tandems. And you write about this, goalie tandems keeping it all together. Like the, the, the most fun one, obviously, the Boston Bruins uh, with Linus Allmark and Jeremy Swayman. We all love the big teddy bear hug at the end of the games uh, when the Boston Bruins win one. Um, but goalie tandems are a, a fascinating thing right now in the sport, and it winks at a couple of things. And, you know, one, um, goaltenders are no longer being asked to shoulder the 70-game the load uh, anymore. Uh, we know all about, you know, rest and recuperation. And, you know, uh, just as a, as, as a jump-off point here, we always look for trends. And right now the trend is having a 1A and a 1 B, even though there's only a few elite goaltenders in the game right now, do you see this being a trend that continues in the foreseeable future? Well, to hear people talk, it seems like it would be because there's so many moving parts that helped out teams. And so Jim Nill made you know this point as well as a couple of the agents we spoke to for this story, which was when you just look at the pure economic standpoint of it, it makes a lot of sense because teams in this flat cap environment are, are going to be meticulous about money. And even when the flat cap goes away, the thought is they're still going to be that way, especially with a position like goaltending where you just never know how things are going to work out. And when you know that you can have two goalies at a cost-effective price and you're able to make it work to where you can spend that cap money elsewhere, if you're a team, it seems like it's something that would also make sense. And, like, yes, we talk about the rest and recuperation, mm -hmm. but it's also just a matter, too, of being able to have as many options as you can. And when you're able to have those options, it can help you in situations like, let's say, something like the Carolina Hurricanes, where they've gone through injuries, and yet because they have multiple options and not relying on one goalie, like, they are still able yeah. to keep along with things as planned. And that's why they're 16-6-6, and six, and we continue to look at them as a cup contender. Whereas if you look at a team like the Kings, where they've had tandems, the thing is this. You look at a lot of what the L.A. Kings do. The L.A. Kings do a lot of things well, but goaltending has been their biggest problem this year, no matter who's in net. And so it's one of those things where if you can have those options, and at least one of those options is performing well. It's going to give you, uh, again, a, a good advantage. But to have both of them perform well and then do it at a price that doesn't break the bank, if your teams, how do you not want to continue that? You know, Ryan, I think you mentioned a really, really interesting name there and an important name, and that's Jim Nill. So general manager of the Dallas Stars. And, you know, this dovetails into the combination of, uh, of great duos as well and, and needing a solid backup whatever the word backup means right now in the nhl you know you look at the dallas stars and the one thing at the beginning of every season you look at it and you say okay which team has the worst travel which team has the worst travel schedule um and it's always dallas like dallas has a brutal 
travel schedule each and every year. And I remember, you know, talking to someone there years ago, um, you know, back in the Kari Lettinen days and like, man, you guys are spending a lot of money on goaltenders. And he said, look, we have to, we have to have two goaltenders. Have you seen our travel? Like to say nothing about, you know, playing your 1A and a number of games and to your point, rest and, and, and recovery and all that. But our travel is a killer. We need to have, you know, two outstanding goaltenders because our travel is so brutal. Like you look at a team maybe like the New Jersey Devils who play a lot in the area, Rangers, Islanders, Philly, etc. You know, a lot of their, their travel is just a, a, a couple of hours. Ours are major excursions. How much do you think travel factors into a team's decision? How much, how much resources and money do we want to allocate towards our goalie tandem? Well, I mean, it's definitely part of the equation, and that's something Jim Nell talked about, not only for this story, but just previous stories that you know, have been written about this as well, like that travel component and getting in late at night. And look, whether you're a team like the Dallas Stars, the Vancouver Canucks, the Florida Panthers, like they're all teams that do some sense of corner traveling, to use that phrase. And if you're them, you're getting into hotels or you're getting back to uh, your, your home base sometimes at, what, one, two, three, four in the morning. And to be able to have those options where you can rest players is huge. And so for this story, we talked to John Hines, and he talked about how do you find rest for someone like a UC Soros, given that you know UC Soros went from being in a tandem to last year he led the league and, and games started and games played among goaltenders. And he was saying, like, that's where you have to look at the schedule to figure out, like, what are those points that you can rest a player? Like, whether it's having the, the yeah. 1B or back up whatever term you want to use, depending on your structure, play those games. But then it's practice times as well. And he was making the point that, like, if you're practicing at home or if you're able to bring a third goalie with you on the road, that is where you use that third goalie to, to allow them to get the shots that a starter would get. And, and maybe you say, okay, maybe we don't have the starter do pre-practice workouts, post-practice workouts. You come to practice and that's it. And so while, yes, like travel is a huge part of it, it really does go back to like load management. And a story like this, which, you know, you've done plenty of them, you talk to people and sometimes not everything makes it in. But one of the phrases that got used on the cutting room floor by someone was, it's load management. And they were like, you know, we all look at the NBA and people laughed at the NBA when they talked about load management with those Spurs teams of Duncan, Parker Ginobili, of course, LeBron in his later years. But it's like really that philosophy has made its way to the NHL because like it is an 82 game season. A lot of different things can happen. And when you look at a position like goaltending, yeah. which if you can get consistency, it's going to take you a long way. Like you need to do everything you can to ensure you're maximizing all the things that come with that, that position. So that way, when the postseason comes, like you may have questions elsewhere, but you can hopefully have fewer questions yeah. about what goes on in that compared to other positions. I don't think anybody in Toronto laughs at load management anymore after Kawhi Leonard won them an NBA championship. I don't think anyone's <laughs> laughing about, uh, about loads. Like, take as, as long as there's a big, as long as there's a parade at the end of it, take as many games off as you need. You know, growing up, um, growing up, the, the greatest backup goaltender uh, of the generation when I was very young was Bunny LaRock, who was the backup goaltender for Ken Dryden. Uh, with the Montreal Canadiens. Now, you can, I, of course, make the argument, like, well, you look at the big three on the blue line, you know, anyone who played behind Ken Dryden was going to be the best backup goaltender uh, in the NHL. <laughs> but as far as you can glean for whatever backup means and, you know, the more politically, 
you know, uh, correct term is like, oh, he's our 1B, you know, it's a, uh, uh, is, is there, are there one or two that really stand out for you as, I mean, Johan Hedberg, you know, Moose was great at that as well. Um, are there one or two that stand out for you and you look at and you say, you know what, let's use a traditional definition and just call this guy the best backup in the NHL. One of the, the names that, that got brought up in this story was Curtis McElhaney. And again, that was one of those cutting room things because yeah. the point that got made was you look at how Tampa operates. Any goalie that goes to Tampa, you know what the deal is. Andre Vasilevsky, barring an injury or a truncated yeah. COVID-19 season, is going to play at least 65 to 70 games. And you're not going to get as many opportunities as you would, let's say, if you were to go somewhere else where, again, if you're in a place like a Pittsburgh or a Philadelphia, you're probably go- or, or L.A., to go back to that example, you're probably going to get more opportunities because, again, while those goalies are good, like they're not Andre Vasilevsky, and it's totally understandable. Yeah. And so that's the thing is players like that, players like Brian Elliott, like those are the sort of players – that you look at, but in the sense of like who would be the best backup in the league in that traditional standpoint, again, the name that people kept coming back to was either Curtis McElhaney or Brian Elliott because like they were players who were able to come in, play a role. They yeah. know how to do it within a limited scope, but they could play more if you need them to. So it seems like those would kind of be the players that stand out. Um, you know, it, it's curious too. I, uh, we always wonder about goaltenders at the draft, and you know, there used to, there are some that still hang on to this idea that you know goaltenders are voodoo. Don't throw a first round pick at a goaltender because you never know what you're going to get. Make your goalie picks later on in the draft, and then what normally happens is one team takes a goalie, and then there's a run on goaltenders because everyone panics and says, "Oh, oh, all the goalies are going to be gone," and then bam, 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 the goalies. Uh, start going at the draft. Given the realities of what, you know, duos mean right now and how important it is to have as many quality goaltenders in your organization. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I kind of said tongue-in-cheek, but I was kind of halfway serious about it, too. Like, there's a couple of years ago where I looked at the Detroit Red Wings and said, man, they need some help in net. Now, they ended up drafting uh, Sebastian Costa from the Edmonton Oil Kings. But I remember that year I said, I wouldn't be surprised if the Red Wings used every single pick on a goalie. Like, if they're lottery tickets, get as many lottery ticks as possible. Given the realities of how goaltenders are handled right now, Ryan, how does this affect teams' perspective on goalies at the draft? It's interesting because Jesper Wallstead, of course, who's the prospect goalie with the Minnesota Wild, who's now yep. in Iowa in the AHL, he's someone who grew up playing in a tandem system. And to hear him talk, it seems like if you have goalies who come up through tandem system. Like, it helps them not only understand what the demands could be, but also they can adjust their training regimen to where not only can they handle the demands of a tandem, but they can handle the demands of what happens if you're good enough to get increased playing time. But as for how teams, like, look at the draft, it seems like in some ways it's still going to be a little bit of a mystery because, like, again, another one of those cutting room floor things was when I was talking to Jim Nill, he took me through their process of of Jake Ottinger's development and what he was saying was this? He was like, yeah. we we've looked at him since he was in high school, and he's like, he is six foot five, he's two hundred plus pounds, like he is physically built to play this position. But in terms of like, when do you know? The reality is, you just don't know. And like, it's like that with a lot of different positions. I mean, we say this about quarterback in the NFL, and before I covered the NHL, I covered college football, and covering the ACC, I saw Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, and Mitch Trubisky. 
And Mitch Trubisky looked like he literally had everything under the sun to go be a legitimate number one starter in the NFL for at least a decade, and it hasn't mm-hmm. worked out that way. And goaltending looks like it's one of those similar things. And, I mean, like, look, let's take a team like the Rangers, for example. Like, they had an all-time great in Henrik Lundqvist, who was a seventh rounder. Yet, on the other side, you look at what happened in that same draft in 2000. Rick DiPietro went number one, and they had completely different careers. Again, you just never know. Or you look at the Rangers now with what they've done with Shesterkin, or better yet, the Florida Panthers might be one of the best examples of this because they have one guy in Sergei Bobrovsky who's a Vesna, multiple Vesna Trophy winner who is an undrafted free agent, but yet the other player they have is Spencer Knight, who's not only a first-round pick, but people think Spencer Knight could be one of the best goalies in the league. Or, like, I even look at Connor Hellebuck, who, like, Connor Hellebuck was a later-round pick. Again, you just never know. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Hellebuck, too. I, see, I'm fascinated with Hellebuck. Like, Hellebuck was the guy that, you know, some seasons, and he's having one, where he's completely dialed in, and he shows, like, this guy's amongst the elite and the times the best goaltender in the NHL. The knock on Hellebuck previously had been, and this sort of winks back at, at what you were just talking about, he had been a goaltender that looked for ways to be distracted, looked for areas to take him away from his focus. And he fell into that. And anyone around him will tell you that. When he is completely dialed in, though, he's amongst the elite in the game. And maybe that's the reason you look at it and you say, yeah, you know what? Lundquist was a seventh-round pick. Rick DiPietro was a first, uh, first overall pick. You know, maybe so much of this just exists between the ears, and as much as we focus on goaltenders and what they do on the ice, maybe should we be between the posts, maybe we shouldn't worry so much about what happens between the posts as much as we should worry about what also happens between the ears with goaltenders. It could be some of that, but it could also be environment and setup and structure. And I mean, let's take Linus Olmark as a really good example of that. The way Linus Olmark mm-hmm. is playing this year, like, he looks like yep. he's going to win the Vesna. But at the same time, I mean, right. it's also that question of, but, but what was the situation in Buffalo? Because, I mean, like, you look at the Buffalo Sabres and what they've had the last couple of years. Between Linus Olmark and Robin Leonard, like, they've had goalies. But, again, it's just it sometimes is about situation. It's about opportunity. It's about structure. It's about, you know, who's with you, who's in front of you. Like, it's about all these different things that you need to go well. And, like, it's so hard to say what the exact cause could be because, whether you look at things like goalie development or you look at things about how goalies are, are, are able to succeed, it's different everywhere. So let's yeah. use two teams who are kind of examples of this. Like, you look at the Washington Capitals. The Capitals and the Penguins, they are able to draft and develop goaltenders out of every round, it seems. Whereas if you look at a team like the Colorado Avalanche, the most successful goalie that the Avalanche have developed that they have drafted since 2000 was Peter Budai, and even then, a good chunk of Peter Budai's games came away from Denver. But yet, when you look at what the yeah. Avs have done the last three to four years as they've remained cup contenders who eventually won the cup, goalie has been the revolving door. They've gone from Demian Varlamov to Philip Grubauer to Darcy Kemper, yeah. and now they're on Alexander Georgiev. But the thing is this, they're able to make it work because they're able to put those goalies in a structure where, and every team tries to do this, where you want to force shots from distance and, 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 and try to make sure that you give your goalies like a, a decent amount of, of chances and you limit high-danger chances. But here's the reality of Colorado structure. 
Colorado is not only fast, but Colorado is extremely selfish when it comes to having the puck. And if you can hold on to possession and limit shots on top of just knowing where to be in passing lanes and having athletes all over the place, like those things help. So, again, it's just an amalgamation of a bunch of different <laughs> things when it comes to why it could work. And there are some players who are going to work in some systems. There are some players who aren't going to work in certain systems. And then there could be some players who it doesn't matter what system you put them in, they're going to find ways to win you games. Fascinating. Uh, I love the goalie talk. You can read Ryan at ESPN.com. Ryan, thanks as always for stopping by, pal. You continue uh, the great work, and we'll check back soon, bud. You got it. Thanks again for having me. There he is, Ryan Clark from, uh, from ESPN. I wanted to get to some Calder stuff, too, with Ryan. He writes extensively about that, but we are plumb out of time. One thing I did want to add there as well for, uh, for goaltenders, uh, the Buffalo Sabres with Linus Olmark, um, there was the belief, like Buffalo internally thought that they were going to be able to keep him and resign him. Don't forget, they protected him in the Seattle expansion draft, thinking that he wasn't going anywhere and they were going to resign him. I can only imagine what went through, you know, the Buffalo front office when he said, eh, I'm going to the Boston Bruins. The other point, there used to be a prevailing thought among some general managers, and I used to hear it countless times, considering it took goaltenders longer to get to the NHL, the feeling was, let someone else draft them, let someone else develop them, let someone else pay for all of that, We'll just buy our goaltenders. We'll draft and develop forwards. We'll draft and develop defensemen. But goalies take longer. We'll pay for it. Let someone else do the drafting and do the developing. Thanks to Ryan for stopping by. Thanks to Randy Hahn. And thanks to Matt Marchese doing double duty, producing and hosting. You're the best, Maddie. Merrick Show, back tomorrow.